Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Um, I debated doing a podcast at all this week, but the show must go on, and I thought it would be good to uh, honor my dad, who passed away earlier this week from complications of cancer, something that he had been fighting for several years now. And I really didn't want to do this, but I'm forcing myself to do this because... I think it's the right thing to do. And it puts into perspective a lot of things that I think about currently in, in the world we live in today. And um, anyway, here it goes. My dad was born in Pyongyang, North Korea in 1942. He was the youngest of seven kids. I never knew that uh, I had an aunt, the oldest of my dad's siblings, that refused to leave North Korea before the war started. And um, my dad came from really total poverty, which, you know, after he was born in Pyongyang, he moved, I guess, towards the border of what is now Korea and China. And he grew up in a very, very hard life. Getting stories out of your parents, if you're immigrants particularly, you know, I think Korean parents is very difficult because it's full of just total sorrow. and. I think a good portion of my life, I never quite contemplated or understood or fathomed the, the pain that they both endured or Korean parents in general, if they immigrated to America, their lives were uprooted and their home lives were destroyed. I know that was true for both my parents. And after the war, my dad somehow, the youngest of seven kids, was told by my grandmother that he had to go. And somehow my grandmother had saved enough money to get my dad a ticket to America. And I'm not even sure how he got the papers or a visa, but I know that he came to America in New York City in 1963. And he worked in restaurants, as many immigrants do. That's the first job they can get if they don't speak the language. And I, I know, because I've asked him, he was sort of a handyman and dishwasher. And every time my dad had to come up to New York, there would be a twinge of pain or agony because I think the city kicked his ass, as it can do. But coming to America and New York in the early 60s, I think that would be incredibly difficult. And again, I'm not Taiwanese-American, but when you watch Tiger Tail, Alan Yang's film about a Taiwanese-American family and sort of that transition in life and how difficult it can be, I can't imagine what my dad had to endure or, or to experience. He literally didn't know a single person here. And, you know, the typical story that he had $50 in his pocket is true. You hear it a lot because it was often true. And um, I know that he lived in movie theaters a lot and strange living situations because it's something that I know my uncle told me that when my uncle came to America like a year or two later, they both were working in the same restaurants. He told me a lot of times that they both would have to like sleep in movie theaters. And it's something that I've never forgotten. And somehow in between New York City, my dad wound up in a small coal mining town in Kentucky. I have no idea how or what, but I believe it was a little bit to do with immigration and, and getting sort of a student visa. And then he obviously came back to work as restaurants. I, there's giant, giant <laughs> holes in my dad's story. And growing up, I just had never had the courage to ask because... I was always envious of how other 
I would say white kids had relationships with their parents and could talk freely. And there were some Korean kids that I see would have a little bit more of an open relationship. And I found, you know, in in my point of view, a lot of those Korean kids that had a more free-flowing conversation with their parents, their parents were like academics or doctors or electrical engineers. And that was one part of the immigration, the intellectuals. My dad certainly was not. And he came from a different lifestyle and different upbringing. And conversation with my dad forever was, I want to say non-existent, but it was a bunch of grunts and, and no's and yes and orders. And I don't think it really changed until I, I got into college and then uh, a little bit later in life for, for my dad. But this is something that I know a lot of immigrant kids can relate to. There's just a lack of communication and a general fear of not being able to please them. And it's one of the reasons why I haven't been able to really ask my dad. And now I won't be able to know for sure. And I tell you this because... I hope that if you're listening to this and and you can relate to the story, I hope you can find the courage that I couldn't to ask your dad or your mom these holes. It's a giant culture gap. And I can't even begin to start to talk about the contrast in how I grew up and versus how my dad grew up. Anyway, my, my dad moved on south from New York City following the Mid-Atlantic Corridor. I know he worked in Pennsylvania. And like many immigrant workers in restaurants, you know, they realize early on that the pay is better on the front of the house level. So my dad never cooked, ever. He worked as a busboy, runner, and then he became a server, then a captain, working in a variety of restaurants. And uh, eventually becoming assistant manager and then general manager, And I know that there was a bunch of restaurants in between New York City and Washington, D.C. And then, again, like a giant hole is I have no idea how my dad wound up operating his own restaurant in Washington, D.C. And when I say restaurant, it wasn't a white tablecloth restaurant. It was sort of like a cafe, American cafe, serving American continental food. And the only food memory I have from it was sometimes... Oftentimes, I'd get leftover chicken soup that my dad would bring home, but I never saw my dad growing up. I was really raised mostly by my grandparents, particularly my mom's parents. And the reason I remember chicken soup is because that's like the only time I, I feel like I got to see my dad. And when he got out of the restaurant business, that's when I saw him a little bit more. But, you know, it has always been a time suck for people. And um, that's that's remain true for many years. If you work in the restaurant business, you just don't see your family. And I couldn't tell you a memory of my dad before he got into the golf business. And somehow my dad got into the golf business, which is strange enough. You know, I know a little bit of that story. He had a lot of his Korean buddies sort of divvy up the Washington, D.C., Maryland, Northern Virginia area. And my dad was the poorest and youngest of the lot. And he was given at the time Tyson's Corner, Virginia area. This was like the Washington Golf Centers, right? It was like a co-op almost. And he was he drew Tyson's Corner, which now is one of the biggest commercial shopping centers. There's two of them. Galleria, it's massive. It is like the epicenter, one of the epicenters for DC shopping, like malls. And at the time, I think there was a mall, but it wasn't something that was massive. 
because no one lived there. No one lived west of Tyson's Corner. I mean, it was farmland. And today you have a lot of tech firms and this suburban boom that happened over, you know, 25, 30 years. But at the time, it was really hard to connect the dots to see that it would become this like thriving sort of temple towards to capitalism. And my dad benefited from it tremendously. And he was the right place, right time. And he ran a golf store for many, many years. And it was something that was ingrained in my life. And I, uh, I played a lot of golf. And my dad forced me, really forced me at the age of five to play golf every day for many, many years. And I sort of cringe at the thought of uh, when I see parents sort of yelling at their kids on the golf course or tennis or anything. That was uh, not a good time for me. But uh, I've spent a lot of time in therapy trying to understand why and how my dad would would make me play golf. And um, I learned <laughs> that, you know, his love was uh, conditional as to how well I played. And that was tough. That was really tough. And all of my dad's deficiencies and faults, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand and ultimately learn to forgive. And I'm not saying that I'm there yet, but I'm trying. And on a happy memory of my dad around that period, and I'm talking like the early 80s, maybe 88, 89, I remember helping out in the register at the golf store. And again, like... This golf store is important if you sort of know what Momofuku is about too, because it was a total shitbox. You had like AstroTurf on the floor and there was nothing. There was like plastic flags, but it was like Price Club or Costco for golf. You would get the shipments of golf balls, golf bags, clubs, and they would just be stacked in boxes everywhere. And the whole idea was, I'm going to pay very little for the decor because I want the total value to get back into the pocket of the, the consumer. And it was in a really bad location and not even like a, <laughs> it was a warehouse, but a warehouse that was incredibly hard to find. And he built a golf business that way, which was very Spartan. And it's taken me several, several years to realize that I spent so much time in that fucking golf store. It certainly left a, a giant impression as to who I would operate my own restaurants. And he stripped away all the bullshit. And I try to strip away all the bullshit in, in dining. And, uh, you know, one of those days when I worked there, when I wasn't playing golf, I was working there, breaking down boxes, learning how to repair golf clubs, working the cash register, is the only time I ever saw my dad cry. In, like, genuflection. This old white guy came in trying to buy golf clubs. And my dad came out of the office, and this guy was looking at the golf clubs on the, on the wall. And he was like, Joe Chang. And my dad stopped in his tracks and I'm looking at this entire interaction and I am like, oh my God, I've never seen my dad react that way before. Like he's talking to his boss. You know, my dad was the boss. I've never seen him sort of pay respect to anyone that wasn't his older sisters or brothers in an honorific Korean way. And I don't know exactly what they said, but I saw my dad just sort of, you know, shake his hand the guy didn't buy any golf clubs at the time and he walked out and my dad started to well up in tears. And I don't know if I asked anything and my dad told me, he was like, that was my old boss at the restaurant. And I later found out that guy sold the restaurant to my dad in the Washington DC area. 
And I don't know, again, the backstory behind that. But that guy changed my dad's life by giving him an opportunity. And it's something that I've never forgotten because it changed his life forever. And this guy gave a Korean immigrant a chance to operate his own business. And uh, that was something I've never forgotten. And it's one of the reasons why I always try to treat our dishwashers. I'm not perfect, but I've always tried to treat our dishwashers with the utmost sort of kindness because like, I always see that as my dad. And um, it's always why we, if someone that doesn't speak English well wants to work for in the house, we always try and, to find a way to make that happen so they can learn English. Because that's how my dad learned English. He, he worked his way up in the restaurant industry, teaching himself what is effectively still broken English, but enough to work in a restaurant. And, you know, he worked long enough in restaurants to get out. I know at the age of 40, he sold his restaurant. He had a restaurant in the National Press Club and then something else. I, I don't remember what. And he was in the painting business for a year. And then he sold that and that's how he got in the golf business. But through it all, you know, my dad was Joe Chang. Joseph Jinpil Chang was a complicated man. and. You know, one of the reasons why I want to talk about his life was I don't think I've ever heard this sort of story on a podcast. And maybe you can read about it in books. But, you know, after Chris, Isaac, and myself spoke about the Korean-American model minority nonsense, um, I'm proud of my dad. And I want to own up to what he's done, both good and bad, and share it because I feel like we don't have to accept the same responsibilities as the second generation or third generation immigrants or kids of Korean parents. And I spent a lot of time. I've seen my psychiatrist since 2003. And I would say of those, I don't know how many hundreds of hours, I would say a minimum 50% of those hundreds and hundreds of hours are dedicated to my dad. And what is like, you know, equivalent of trauma and my effective dysregulation of my emotions. Uh, I have a hard time. I have an incredibly hard time controlling my emotions because of fears of abandonment and failure and a sense that something will be taken away from me. And I directly attributed that to my dad. And it's unfortunate that people around me, people that work for me, my own wife, have had to sort of, unfortunately, had to deal with that. It's a, literally a dysregulation where I, in a sort of weirdly manic state, don't know how to react to something in a, in a way that most people would. And I spent a lot of time angry at my dad about that. Simultaneously, I have to remember how he was brought up and the life that he had to live and the true hardships. And it doesn't reconcile it per se. It doesn't make up for anything. It just makes me try to forgive. And I'm really learning now, even after he's gone over the past couple of years, I've really tried to make a, a concerted effort to forgiving my dad. And I never thought that I'd get there. And that's really what I wanted to share was that sort of upbringing, which was fucking hard. It was really hard. A lot of punishment, a lot of, you know, I, I don't think if you're a non-immigrant kid or non-Korean kid or non-Asian kid, it's going to be really hard to understand what it was like to grow up in those households in the early 70s, late 70s, 80s, 90s. And it's a different ballgame today. And uh, you have an entire generation of parenting from Korea that was 
based on fear and commands. And uh, thank God it's changing. But we've inherited that kind of trauma. We lived through that trauma because that's how they were raised. And it's fucking hard. It was really hard growing up that way in a house of fear. And uh, once I saw that's how I was basically operating my own restaurants in my own life too, I was like, fuck, I have to change this. I don't want to be as angry as my dad. And I know something's wrong and I need help. And so much of who I've tried to be as a person is because I'm trying to not be my dad, not have the deficiencies of my dad. And every time I wind up doing something that my dad does, it fucking kills me. It kills me. Because I want to be the best version of me, which ultimately is the best version of my dad. And I, I, I said this in Ugly Delicious, the kids episode. And I've studied a lot of this shit. And I just wanted to repeat it because it's something that I, I think about daily as an affirmation. I believe in reincarnation, not necessarily as the textbooks say in Hindu scripture or Buddhism. That takes a leap of faith that I was beautiful, but I'm not there. But I take it more as a metaphor. We're born from our parents and we inherit their trauma. We inherit their default settings, whether that be DNA or culture. And we are left with this sort of ability to choose. We have to be the best version of ourselves. And being that best version of ourselves is to take these default settings that we've inherited and to reject them and to be a living embodiment of what they weren't able to do and what they failed at. And I can't appreciate this until I am able to see, you know, what my dad lived by and how he lived through it. And obviously my biggest issue is anger. It's something that I, <laughs> I inherited from my dad and both I think as a genetic way and through a traumatic way. And I'm trying my best to not do that. That is literally my biggest thing is that. And, um, I'm trying. I'm trying to be the best version of myself because I, I can't have Hugo be raised the way I was raised. I just couldn't do that. And I'm learning. I'm trying. And I got to do it because it's, I think the best way I can honor my dad is weirdly not to be him. And all my DNA and all of my sort of instincts are always to react like my dad. And it's not disrespectful and I'm not trying to demean him by not trying to be like him because I just don't think my dad ever had the capacity or the ability to reflect in a way. It's not an excuse, but I spent a lot of time understanding who he was and why he was. And it's a lot when you understand this kind of sadness. And it's something that we're all going to have to endure because everyone we know is going to die. It's a reality. And the older I get, the more and more I believe in the teachings of, of Buddhism because everything leads to suffering and finding some kind of detachment, the cessation of suffering is paramount. And I think the, the way I can sort of overcome the suffering is to be the best version of myself and to not think about the sadness of my dad or the trauma of my dad and the things that my brothers and sisters have had to endure because he tried his best and we're all humans and we all fail, we all falter. We can only hope that when you aggregate all the decisions in your life, we can only hope that you've made more right decisions than wrong and you've learned from your mistakes. And if so, my parents or my dad couldn't, then it's on me to, to try to right those wrongs. And I hope that I am successful at that. You know, I, I've inherited a lot of my dad's trauma. There is, I believe, generational trauma. And 
family trauma. And obviously, we don't have to talk about the Han. But uh, if you need to learn about that, it's there. And just, it's a lot of very accurate information is out in the internet right now about Han, H-A-N, Korean Han. And it's my choice to do something about it. It's my choice to sort of break that cycle. And... I still have problems with my emotions and I still have issues thinking about my dad and I'm trying, I'm trying my best and I fail a lot and I'm trying to learn what unconditional love is because my dad really had conditional love because that's what was taught to him and the life that he was given. You know, I I know I'm trying to not paint a portrait of my dad in a negative way and I hope if you've been listening that it doesn't come across that way. It's taken me a long time to appreciate the good and the bad and to understand who he was as a whole man, as a holistic picture of who he was. And my mom said, she's such a smart ass and she's so goddamn funny. You know, she spoke to me yesterday and she said, <laughs> laughing, she said this as a joke. Your father, and she said this in Korean, so I'm translating as poorly as I can or as best as I can. He was a flawed dad and a bad husband, but I love him and I miss him. And uh, I couldn't agree more, Mom. We're all human. We all are fallible. We all make mistakes. And it's tough to figure out logistics for a funeral right now in this COVID world and to do social distancing. And it's uh, something that, uh, unfortunately, way too many people have had to deal with for the past four months. And my heart goes out to all the families. My heart goes out to all the families that have lost to someone to cancer. It's a horrible thing. My dad lived a very full life. He, he did a lot, that's for sure. And he was beloved. And he died of bile duct cancer. And he lived a lot longer than the oncologists and doctors thought that he would. And... I'll tell you my one regret, and this is the main reason why I wanted to do this podcast. I hope that if you have a similar kind of relationship with your parents, and as difficult as it may be, and there were certainly moments in my life where I thought, I don't know if they can ever repair this. I ask that you try to think about what it was like to be your parents, to be in their shoes, not to justify their actions but to learn that it's the responsibility of you to be able to forgive them and to be the bigger person and to show them that all that they sacrificed produced a child that took all of their sort of who they are and you became a better person. The last thing they ever wanted us to do to come to this country is to not be better. They sacrificed so much. My dad sacrificed a god-awful amount to provide. And that's the one thing he knew. And I encourage you to do something that I didn't do enough of, is to tell your parents, I love you. That's a word that was rarely used with my dad because he rarely said it. (laughs) It just never happened. I mean, there's two things he never said. I love you and smiling in a photo. Just never happened. Man of very few words and... You know, he knew how to have a good time when it was on the golf course with his friends and he could be himself. But when it came to families, it was like dyslexia for him. And I don't think we have to inherit that. At least I don't. 
And I wish that I was able to tell my dad that I loved him more and that I accept him for all the good and the bad because he provided all these opportunities for his family, for me. And it's my job and my responsibility to be better, both as a person and how I live and as I am as a father now to my own son. And I can't imagine how hard that must be for a lot of us or a lot of you, particularly anyone. But this idea of, of showing and emoting love to your parents in a way that from a Western perspective is just so counterintuitive. And if you have parents that came to this country in the 60s and 70s, I think you should connect with them and, and try to talk to them. And, you know, it's not just about talking about Black Lives Matters and maybe more than likely their conservative viewpoints and their desire to uphold the model minority. I think it's about talking to them and telling them who you are and the concerns that you have and all the conversations you have in your mind, but you just don't say. You know, call your parents and have the opportunity to say all the things that have never been said. And I'm thankful that over the past 24 months, as my dad's condition got worse, we had some pretty fucking brutal conversations. And I told him some things that I never had the courage to say before. And um, I'm glad that we did. I think that it's made this whole process less terrible to know that we had some closure. And I'm not saying that this is the same for everybody, please. But I do know there's a lot of you guys out there that have strained relationships. And I just ask that you try to put yourselves in their shoes and understand why they might have a certain way of living or viewpoints. And I think the more you do that, the more you're able to have some compassion and empathy. And I hope that you're able to get to a place and say, thank you for all that you've done. And I, I love you guys. And just because they have a hard time showing that emotion doesn't mean that you have to. And I know I talked about it before. I, I think this is a, in some ways the embodiment of what Gandhi was talking about, of satyagraha, like a truth force. Powerful, powerful love. And uh, I never thought I'd talk about a lot of this stuff, but here I am talking about this stuff. And that's funny how things work out. I never thought I'd try to make immense with my dad and here I am and my only regret is I didn't do it earlier I didn't do it earlier and I'm thankful for all that he's done so thanks dad and mom I know it's been hard but um, we got your back so I wanted to do uh, I wanted to say happy Father's Day. It's not just for your fathers, it's your mothers. But uh, call your dad, tell them that you love them, and just thank them for all that they've done. And uh, I know how complicated that could be. But uh, to all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. <laughs>